but I also saw the ugly side of a business like fashion. And I couldn't just sit there and exploit only a way to make money. I wanted to see a way to also, you know, bring some good uh, into the world. Straight Strive Innovation. Hey everyone, it's Matt here for another episode of Thinking Inside the Box, a show where we discuss complex issues related to work and culture. If you're interested in checking out our other content, you can find us at bentohr.com and wherever you find your favorite podcasts by searching Thinking Inside the Box. And if you enjoy the work we're doing here, consider leaving us a five-star rating, a comment, and subscribing. It ensures you get updated whenever we release new content and really helps amplify our message. In today's episode, I chat with Lana Alia, venture-backed Y Combinator founder at StyleLend, head of revenue at SafetyWing, and an advisor to startups and the EU for innovation. Lana is a remote work advocate, an expert at building fully dispersed teams, and a digital nomad who's visited 80-plus countries. She's uniquely qualified to discuss things like conscious life design, team culture, and innovation. We discussed her path through entrepreneurship, the lessons she learned along the way, and their relative weight in informing her own life's path and professional journey. We discussed remote work, best practices for dispersed teams, and the changing views around organizational cultures. It was a really fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. And now I bring you Lana Alia. Hello, Lana. It's good to see you today. Hey, Matt. <laughs> nice to meet you. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. And uh, before we get into it, I think just for the benefit of myself and our audience, I'd learn, love to learn a bit more about your background, your experiences, and uh, what brought you to today. Amazing. Uh, happy to kind of share my lived experiences with the audience. I um, started my life in Albania. I was born and raised there until 15. Then my dreams were so big that uh, the country I was born in did not offer the opportunities to achieve those dreams. So I went to the U.S. And uh, the U.S. was not really what I thought it would be because I used to watch um, things like Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place. And uh, they painted a picture of America that wasn't really true. Uh, I ended up in Texas, of all places. And uh, my experience was definitely not (laughs) like in the movies. Uh, However, I was able to lean into my resilience and um, continue to like check off the list of all of the goals that I had set out to accomplish, uh, including traveling to almost 80 countries, um, learning seven languages, uh, finishing my MBA at the top of my class, uh, as well as, you know, being an entrepreneur. I started my company in 2013, went through Y Combinator, raised $2 million, got about 60,000 people to use uh, our product And uh, then COVID came, everything went down to zero. uh, And I had this once in a lifetime opportunity to build a country on the internet, which that's what I'm doing now with Safety Wing. And uh, yeah, I'm living this nomadic life with my uh, husband and two kids. We are fully um, out there remote and uh, we go from country to country every few months, sometimes maybe like a month at a time. 
And though, yeah, my child is, well, my two kids are four and two, and they're familiar with about three languages now and uh, many different cultures. So I'm very passionate about remote work um, as well as work from anywhere. So not just like working from home, but being able to have the freedom uh, to work from anywhere you want. Uh, I'm very passionate about living a rich life without necessarily being rich. So I want to teach others that you can have that life. You don't have to have an exit. You don't have to climb the corporate uh, ladder, like you said, where you get to the top and you say, oh, God, there's more and I am exhausted. Uh, you can really devise a life that fits your needs and makes you really happy. It's a beautiful story. And I, I absolutely want to dig into the life design components of it, because for those who are listening Many of them are in the corporate world and in a world post-COVID, we are all looking at life design, I think, more intentionally than we maybe once did. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that. But before we get there, you, you mentioned that your early roots were in Albania and that at some point in your life, you realized that the dreams that you had were larger than the container of Albania that could possibly handle. And I'm curious, what were some of those early dreams for you? Some of those things that you know brought you that passion that made you consider leaving your home country? <laughs> yeah, there's a, quite a few of them. I think as a child, like you make a list of things and you're like, oh, I want to do this and I want to do that. Uh, and of course, like, you know, graduating from a top institution of the world was at the top of the list. Uh, and that's not possible, obviously, given the circumstances that Albania was in in the late 90s. Uh, it had gone from being communist to democracy. Everything was completely destroyed, including the education system. Uh, but yeah, I always had my eye uh, to America because it seemed like this place where uh, it was made for me. It was made for people who are kind of like hungry to accomplish dreams. And it, it seemed like a place of meritocracy that you didn't need to know anyone. You can really just uh, achieve exactly what, it, what you set out to achieve uh, without having you know to know anybody or to, um, I guess, be from a certain country or family or background. Uh, but yes, exactly. Like going through the best schools, uh, you know, traveling the world, uh, being able to learn more languages, being able to have this opportunity to start a billion dollar company. That was one of my dreams uh, because I wanted to have impact on a billion people. And uh, that's not something that is usually started in a small country like Albania. Maybe nowadays, yes, but not back then. And that venture did eventually lead you to America. And you said you ended up in Texas of all places. What? Why Texas and not... Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York or Boston? What about Texas drew you? Oh, yes. Uh, well, I went as an exchange student. You know, I convinced my parents. I was like, hey, I want to go to America. I really have all these things I want to do. And uh, they agreed. They said, okay, we'll pay for you to go to America, be an exchange student. But what I didn't know is that you don't choose your exchange family. You just get assigned to whatever. And unfortunately for me, it wasn't like, you know, Beverly Hills. It was more like the hillbillies. Uh, which is fine. Uh, but unfortunately, they're also like almost living on welfare. So they're using exchange students as a way to get a tax break. And, um, you know, they like stole money from me. It was a really tough situation being a child, being like 15 years old, having to deal with that. And I was left at this like crossroads. What do I do? 
but fortunately for me, my tennis teacher at the time who was a strong Basque woman uh, from Spain. Um, she took me into her home. She had three kids of her own, but she saw what a terrible situation I was in and it wasn't really my fault. And that really saved the day, to be honest, because um, from then on, my life kept getting better and better. I moved to Florida. From there, I was able to make it to New York and San Francisco. So I did live in the startup central. Um, I was able to meet some of the world's most amazing people at the time, which were like Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, and Marissa Meyer, and Sheryl Sandberg, and the founders of Google, and you name it. Um, so I was very lucky to meet some of the most inspiring people when I got to Silicon Valley. And that's what started my path to full-time entrepreneurship. And I'd love to learn a bit more about the path between Florida and Silicon Valley, because you told an incredible story about somebody who helped you at a time when, as you put it, you came to America with the best of intentions, with big dreams and big aspirations. Unfortunately, you're paired with a family that doesn't view the relationship with their exchange students as being mutually beneficial. In some cases, as you mentioned, quite exploitative and just not a great experience overall. You meet somebody amazing on the journey who changes the course of your life why Florida and what what in Florida took you to to meet people, as you mentioned, like Reed Hoffman and Marissa Mayer? I'd love to learn about what happened in the middle of that sandwich. <laughs> yes, there was a lot in the middle of that sandwich because I was quite young still. Um, Florida, it's kind of random because... Um, the neighbors that we had in Albania had won the green card lottery. So they had settled in Florida and they were like, come over here. Florida is great. We'll help you guys get started. And luckily, uh, just a year into my exchange student uh, kind of like course, uh, my parent, my mom wins the green card lottery. So then we're able to come. They come to the U.S. and we settle in Florida for about a year we saw that at the time, to be honest, Florida didn't also offer a lot of opportunities, especially for people that were of a foreign background. It was a very much like US-centric kind of place. Now it's changed completely. That was in the late 90s. Uh, so then my, my dad's brother lived in Washington, D.C. And he's like, hey, there is work over here. Uh, my dad was an air traffic controller. So it made sense to be in the airline business uh, he ended up being um, the station manager for Emirates Airlines in Virginia, in uh, yeah, Dallas Airport, Washington, Dallas. So Washington was definitely another like the next spot that we went to. Uh, but then, of course, I had uh, you know bigger dreams that I wanted to go to Silicon Valley. So I did my MBA there, and that's how I got to Silicon Valley. And then from there, I also spent time in New York. Uh, especially starting my company, which was um, and still is a platform uh, to rent uh, fashion peer-to-peer. -peer. So like an Airbnb of closets, if you will. Cool. And as you mentioned, you find yourself in conversations with people, rubbing shoulders side by side with some of the preeminent leaders, thought leaders of our time. And what were those first few conversations like? I can imagine that given the story that you've told, that must have felt like a really surreal experience. Yeah, you ask very good questions, Matt. Um, I mean, from yeah, from the time that I came to the US till when I got to the point in San Francisco, there was like 10, 12 years. And I'd really progressed in my career as well as my schooling and I achieved quite a bit. Um, so when I got to San Francisco, I was doing my MBA. Um, I was leading the entrepreneurship 
ship club at uh, the school. And uh, luckily, my, my dean uh, recommended me to organize this Silicon Valley Summit for the young global leaders. And you might ask, who are the young global leaders? Um, they're called YGLs. Uh, they are actually nominated by the World Economic Forum. And uh, the people at the time that were young global leaders were people like, you know, Marissa Meyer, Sheryl Sandberg, Mark Zuckerberg, founders of Google, LinkedIn, uh, PayPal. So all of those early like multi-billion dollar companies were um, YGLs, as well as other people in other countries that are doing something incredible for the world, but also are having impact. Uh, so there were also, you know, country leaders from Argentina or, you know, other countries, about a hundred of them all together. Uh, so it was like a three-day summit. We were uh, having events uh, or, or actually small closed door events at Google, at Tesla, at Facebook, at LinkedIn. So those were incredibly impressive because I was seeing presentations that no one had seen before. Uh, I was listening to talks that were so futuristic that my brain just like, wow, was opened in so many ways that I was like, I want to be one of these people. You know, I want to earn a seat at the table. Uh, so that's why I started my company because, um, of course, I was passionate. I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. But meeting them, it just made me aim so much higher and uh, I wanted to have the same impact that these people had on the world. Uh, and they were, yeah, incredibly interesting and, and talking about things that are not uh, like your everyday conversation, if you will. Is there a particular conversation that stands out? Uh, you know, at the Computer History Museum, Mary Meeker, who was, uh, I believe, a partner at Kleiner Perkins at the time, she gave this incredible presentation about the future of, you know, mobile and mobility and location and all of that stuff that we didn't really know. But it, this was back in 2010, so 2011. Um, so a lot of things that actually came true were from that conversation that they already knew a lot of those data points. So, you know, sharing a, a lot of that uh, information and knowing it well in advance kind of like helped me be equipped for seeing at what's next around the corner, you know, being a founder and entrepreneur, you want to be at that edge where you're like so far out in the future, but not too far out. Uh, something that where you can bridge the gap between the present and the future. And, and that's um, really like a presentation and, and conversation that helped me see that, wow, there is data out there that we can infer that actually a lot of things will be basically completely on you know e-commerce and, and X amount of, uh, let's say, retail will go completely online, which a lot of retailers back in the day didn't believe it. And that's why a lot of them were left behind. You know, think of how much Amazon progressed uh, or other uh, online um, delivery things, whereas uh, things like Saks Avenue or Nordstrom's or like a lot of these companies that didn't build out their uh, e-commerce early on, even though they were warned like you have to do this they just kind of didn't believe it and they were so far behind that uh, a lot of them were struggling and and they filed for bankruptcy and we know a lot of those stories <laughs> but the, yeah but the idea is like getting a lot of this information that actually because a lot of your listeners work at corporations uh, we should process the information we have now and the data versus resisting to it and that's something that I see also in remote work. A lot of people are resisting to this idea that the world is going more and more remote and the future will be more remote. 
So instead of building systems and building companies uh, and building teams uh, that are for the future, they look backwards and they try to build something that is already the past. <laughs> so this is what I'm seeing, you know, quite a bit. And I, I would recommend to, to look at the data and, and really act on that. There's a lot in what you just said. So I'm going to try and, and parse it into a couple of different pieces because I think it's really important. You talked about, in one sense, being really far ahead of the trend. And as a business and as a new emerging business, having to find that sweet spot between being innovative and providing, if you will, some aspirational value to prospective clients, and then not finding yourself too far ahead where you're unattainable or out of touch with what's happening in, in present day circumstances. And that's a really key message, especially now when the world has accelerated so quickly in some ways. And then as you alluded to with things like remote work, we've seen actually some minor regression in a world that is kind of post-pandemic. I think that's just an, I think that's an important inflection point. Um, and as somebody who put on a virtual reality conference in 2020, it <laughs> deeply resonates with being too far ahead of, of the market. I also spent most of my corporate career in the retail sector. So when you speak about things like organizations resisting change and moving to e-commerce. You know, I worked for the world's largest retailer at the time. And there was a real dragging of the heels when it came to moving things online. And I actually joined when the decision had already been made. And still, there was this sense of comfort with the historical traditional view of like the shopkeeper interacting with, with the customer and that relationship being sacred. And if we put things into a digital interface, all of a sudden that becomes inhuman and we lose some sort of imagined customer value and or competitive you know, differentiator, which never really held a lot of currency. At the time, it felt for me a lot more like people having a hard time letting go of the past because, as you alluded to, if we look at the data, it would have pointed to the fact that more and more consumers actually were looking for less of that traditional relationship with their retailer, but more of convenience. Lives have gotten so busy. People are trying to cram so much into their waking hours that the opportunity to have things brought to them so they don't have to go and spend you know, part of their days off shopping, or they don't have to pack up the kids in the car and drive to four or five different stores. The convenience that's necessitated now by the pace of life is a really strong indicator of where retailers should have thought that we were going. But I want to bring this back to your story as an entrepreneur, because you're seeing all these things that are happening. You've had experiences in your native Albania. You've gone to Texas. You've gone to Florida. You're now interacting with some of the preeminent people in the technology sphere and being exposed to things that, as you mentioned, just completely shifted your mind and your worldview. How did you land on the concept for your organization? Yes, uh, that's a great question. Uh, and yes, exactly. Being in that environment in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and meeting so many founders and investors and these really amazing people that have been so successful, uh, it really infuses your mind with all kinds of ideas. And then you become this idea generator where everything that I could see, I'd be like, oh, I could improve that or I could do this. Or maybe if I merge this idea with that idea, then I could get this 
to come together. So at the time, uh, Uber had just um, figured out how to monetize idle cars as well as Lyft and other companies. Uh, Airbnb was monetizing idle space uh, like apartments and homes, etc. So I thought, why don't we monetize idle closets, uh, meaning all the clothes that are in there? Uh, because the data that I was seeing is that uh, women are wearing dresses, especially, you know, two, three, four times. They're not being utilized fully. Uh, fashion is one of the most polluting industries in the world. I had been part of it for quite a bit. So I thought, how can I innovate in the space? How can I become uh, this force for good where we are extending the life of a garment? So, And the way to do that is by renting it to multiple people and doing it even peer to peer so that the person profits versus the company. Uh, kind of like Airbnb, where you as the, you know, the owner of the home will make quite a bit of money by renting it out. Uh, so I thought, oh, why don't I pitch this idea? And uh, I went to a startup weekend uh, that was organized in collaboration with Zappos. And uh, there were some great judges there. I pitched the idea. I was the winner of the competition. And then I went on to a few other competitions and you know, won some, lost some. Uh, but then eventually made my way to Y Combinator, which was also life-changing because uh, Y Combinator, for those of you that are listening and may not know, it's um, the most prestigious accelerator, if you will, of companies. That's where Airbnb, Dropbox, Stripe, uh, so many companies came from, multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, the acceptance rate is about less than 1%, so similar to like a Stanford or a Harvard. And uh, I felt incredibly lucky that Paul Graham, uh, who is the co-founder of it and one of the most, I guess, famous voices of Y Combinator, uh, really liked the idea and liked our approach and also saw our traction and said, um, yeah, you, you belong here, you know, you should come in. And that's put me also you know, on a different course where I was um, meeting some incredible people uh, that had done uh, really great companies before, had exited them. There are advisors. I'm going to talk to investors and um, you know, get the money that I needed for a seed round. Hey, everyone. It's Matt here. I hope you're enjoying today's discussion. And before we continue, I want to make you aware of my latest creative project. This week at work. Presented in partnership with my good friend, Chris Rainey of HR Leaders, each Friday we'll live stream on LinkedIn at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, that's 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and 3 p.m. GMT for our European viewers, and together bring you the latest trends, news on topics emanating from organizations, everything from culture to technology and the future of work. Joining is easy. Just follow me on LinkedIn. Click the bell at the top right-hand side of my profile, and you'll get notified when we go live each week. And whether you do experience the content live or later, if you've been following me for a while, you'll no doubt recognize the fun banter Chris and I have developed over the years. And whether it's been podcasts or digital events, we're so excited to again bring you the topics affecting today's workplaces and their leaders. And now, back to our discussion. So many incredible you know, experiences that came out of you know being part of Y Combinator as one of the few female founders at the time. And in an organization that is clearly built around having an impact. You talked about the utilization of space, whether it was in a renting places as Airbnb or Uber and renting vehicles. And now you're talking about renting space in closets. 
I'm curious what about an impact-driven business appealed to you? Because as you mentioned, you, you could have done a lot of different things. You were talking to lots of interesting people who had lots of interesting ideas. What about the opportunity to have impact appealed to you when you thought about creating your business? Such a good question, Matt, because I think about the opportunity cost of starting a company as I had so many amazing opportunities to work for you know, Facebook and Google and all of them because I could have easily gotten a very good, good job. But I was just so stubborn, like a lot of entrepreneurs are. And I just wanted so badly to become successful like the people I had met when I first came to Silicon Valley. So I I really wanted to have impact because I didn't want to just have you know a company and it'd be successful. But I also saw the ugly side of a business like fashion. And I couldn't just sit there and exploit only a way to make money. I wanted to see a way to also you know, bring some good uh, into the world. And to be honest, uh, sustainability wasn't a big thing back then in 2013. Uh, we were yelling at the top of our lungs everywhere and talking to retailers and saying, hey, you should be sustainable and use rentals as a way to, um, you know, reuse a lot of the items and not have so much waste. But like nobody was listening. And now in 2022, we hear so much about sustainability uh, but even though they talk a lot about sustainability, not a lot is done. There's a lot of greenwashing. Uh, there's a lot of untrue things that a lot of these fast fashion retailers will do. Like they'll create a fund of like, I don't know, a few million dollars and be like, oh, we're investing in impact or we're do- giving X percent to charity. But then all the billions that they're making uh, by using the resources of the earth and not really paying the true cost of that um, garment or item is uh, being washed by these things that they're supposedly doing. Um, so yeah, to be honest, I, I feel proud of what I did. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also a little bit disappointed that we, we weren't able to get the masses to ad- adapt this sustainable way of thinking. Uh, and and yeah, we, we still have a long ways to go. The planet is heating up at a rate that's unsustainable. Um, I was just at the World Economic Forum, you know, two months ago in Davos, and literally the, you know, the scientists were screaming and, you know, saying like, guys, you know, we we need to do something like the government uh, and the policies need to change. And this current system, uh, it's just rewarding the extraction of carbon from the ground like oil, and it should be the other way around. It shouldn't be rewarded there's a long way like all of us have to go and i'm not sure what to say exactly but uh, uh yeah the more people can do to reverse that you know climate change the better and the more companies we can create that will facilitate that uh, obviously we will be in a much better position than today well i think your last two comments among all the many great things you've just shared are incredibly important and we have created a system, I'll call it, a global system now that incentivizes the wrong kinds of behavior. And environmentalism in a lot of nations is seen as a luxury in like the proverbial like altruism Maslow hierarchy of needs. Because the moment that we saw energy crisis emerge in Europe as a result of the you know, ongoing crisis in the Ukraine, now we're turning back on coal 
and other forms of electricity and power generation that previously were, we stepped away from in service to pursuing a more green agenda. And there's a, there's a level of realism that has to come into play in that conversation. And I agree with you in that it's, it's incumbent upon organizations to look at the broader impact that they're having. Simply setting aside 5% of your earnings is not good enough when you're causing significant damage to the planet and delivering a net negative to what we're all talking about here. It would seem as if that, along with your views around remote work, are quite counter to a lot of other entrepreneurs that I meet, interact with. You know, it's ironic that organizations that in a lot of cases have been digitally native, you mentioned companies like Google and Meta, Airbnb, not all those organizations are remote organizations. Not all of those organizations actually embrace hybrid work at all. I remember seeing a, a quote from Elon Musk less than a month ago about Tesla and their working practices and the expectation that unless it's an exception, people are going to work from the offices, mm-hmm. which led to a mass exodus of people leaving that business. And here's a gentleman that founded PayPal and is certainly bright enough and evolved enough from a technological perspective to understand the, the potential of that modality. I'm curious why you think some people in that space still struggle to make the transition? And maybe a better question is, why did you? Wow, great, great question. And actually, what came to mind as you were speaking was that what if all these corporations that have thousands and hundreds of thousands of people uh, said that, uh, you know, we are going to continue to work remotely because we want to put a stop uh, in this increase of oil prices because of the demand. So instead of putting more pressure into the oil prices, as well as uh, you know, extraction of crude oil all over the world, and obviously Russia profiting in big ways, you know, right now from it, even though all the sanctions have been put in place, that would be something very simple that a lot of these organizations could do. And not only would it save them in terms of not risking a brain drain from their company, because now they're the people that have been used to this new freedom don't want to give it up. And we saw that with people at Tesla and Apple, uh, like you mentioned, uh, you know, that they did have that, like, you have to come back to the office. And then the employees just like rose up and said, no, we're not going to do that. You hired us for a purpose. You didn't hire us to tell us what to do. Like, we're smart enough that we can do this job from anywhere. So partly to answer your question, uh, one thing is trust. Uh, I believe that uh, many people lack the trust that their employees or contractors will do what's best for the company. Uh, and that's very unfortunate. Um, at Safety Wing, the company that um, I work for now is an incredible example. And we're about 150 people, fully remote, remote first, uh, where trust is given uh, right away. And it's not something you have to earn. It's not something people check on you. It's not something like, oh, how many Slack messages did this person send or emails? It is purely based on output. And as you are producing output, everyone sees that there's no need to be in an office or in front of me or telling me that you're working. I can clearly see the the tools, the internet and and 
you know, all of the technology we've built can show us very easily, you know, the output. And uh, it's it's made it so that we don't have to be in a concrete box. We don't have to go to an office just to show face and, uh, you know, lose precious moments, you know, with our kids or with our loved ones. Uh, just because someone is telling you, you have to drive uh, anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and a half to a place and then drive back again and, you know, eat lunch that's not homemade that just have to, you have to buy somewhere and probably taste like crap. Sorry for the language. And <laughs> I, uh, I just don't really understand. And, and also one thing I want to mention is that remote work was sold in the wrong way. And it shouldn't be just remote work. It should be a freedom to work from anywhere. This way, uh, if you love the mountains, let's say in Vancouver, you can live on Whistler, let's say for the winter and ski your heart out. And then in the summer, you can go to the French Alps and go hiking and like really enjoy life. So uh, we have restricted people to just be like, no, you have to work from this geographical location and these time zones. Uh, otherwise, you're not able to work for this company. And I think that's the wrong way of doing things because, you know, the generation of the future, Gen Z, wants a purposeful company, wants a purposeful life, wants a life-centric life and not a job-centric one. So if you allow them the freedom and flexibility to be the best that they can be, they will make sure they deliver so they don't lose that job. So, you know, giving that trust and, and, and really entrusting people will pay so much dividends at the end. I think there's this fear in society that like, oh, if I let them work from home a bit longer, we're going to lose all control. But no, we saw that actually during the pandemic, we had the highest efficiencies in all of our companies. You know, people were working record hours. People are actually getting burnt out because they're working so much. So you don't have to worry about whether they're working or not. Yeah, I think you've, you've hit on a number of key points again. Uh, we definitely did see in a majority of companies, including I mentioned Google, other than a small dip in the early days of the pandemic as companies readjusted their business operations, most companies saw a bounce back and many saw quite record results. And of course, that's dependent on the industry you're in. If you were in commercial real estate in 2020, probably not a good industry to be in. Oh, but yeah. if you were in e-commerce e or technology, massive growth in those sectors. And those that suffered during 2021. I think about airlines, hotels, they're now starting to see a bounce back too as restrictions start to lessen when it comes to the pandemic and vaccines. You mentioned restrictions and you mentioned the restrictions that organizations and their leaders can artificially put on their employees. It's the old, if I can't say that you're working, then you're not working. It's like the 1940s kind of like you know factory mentality. Somebody standing on top of a, you know, a walkway overlooking the shop floor, making sure everybody's just, you know, hustling. And we're now in an era where it's a knowledge-based economy, where hustle is really hard to see in a creative context or in a relationship-building context. And there's also a, a degree of truth in the restrictions that people place on themselves. And you in particular have, again, taken the path less traveled and chosen a life design that is unique. You don't call a particular place home. You and your partner and your two children do travel around the world, learning new languages, having new experiences. And that's a path that many people wouldn't have envisioned for themselves. And in some cases, when they think about it, might say, oh, I, I can't do that. It just, I, I, I have this and that, and you know these reasons why it doesn't make sense. I'm curious that your path to arriving at 
that life design for yourself? What was it like to go from a from the situation you found yourself in running a company to now saying, I want to have complete location independence and I want to prioritize that in my life design? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. And, and actually, uh, if I have to look back, what I would say is that I always thought that I need an exit to live a rich life. Uh, I need an exit means like an IPO or a company buying my company uh, or, or yeah, some form of liquidation uh, where I would receive a large sum of money. And then I'm like, okay, great. Now I have freedom over time and location. And, and if you think about it, uh, wealthy people, that's what they have. They have freedom over their time location. They can do what they want to do with whoever it is um, in terms of like, you know, with their family or people they want to work with. Uh, and they can be wherever they want in the world because they have that freedom. So I thought, how can I get to that? Like, what? how can I hack this so that I don't have to be in this hamster wheel spinning, uh, let's say, in New York City and, you know, to have a comfortable life for me, my partner and my kids, I'd have to make millions of dollars to have a, a decent apartment in Manhattan and um, or, you know, in, in San Francisco, if, if, if uh, you will. Uh, but that wasn't possible. I mean, it seemed like, oh, like so, um, such a steep kind of like um, hill to climb. And, and I wasn't so interested in, in going down that rabbit hole where I'll be stuck in this wheel. So I thought, okay, what if I go to a country that's less expensive than the US and I can have a very high quality of life, but for a fraction of the cost that it cost me in the US? And that's when I discovered geo-arbitrage. So geo-arbitrage is a term used when you are earning in a strong currency and you are spending in a weaker currency. Uh, or if you're earning, let's say, you know, US dollars, um, pounds, euros, uh, and then you are spending in countries like Turkey, Colombia, Mexico, Albania, Croatia, you name it. Uh, and, and the idea is that the life that I had uh, in the U.S. cost me about $10,000 a month just to start with without having too much um, expenses, uh, meaning like going out too much. Uh, whereas in a country, let's say like Albania or Istanbul, it's about 1500 a month. Uh, so there's a huge gap. And with that, um, I can use that money to invest in what makes me happy, uh, but also have a very high quality of life regardless. So we started going to countries that support this type of thinking. And we found other people, other couples doing the same, other people doing world schooling with their kids. So not necessarily having them in a school system, but uh, teaching them um, their kids um, about the world and, and, and different cultures uh, as they go along. So this is something that I'm starting to share with people. And I find a lot of resonance where you, you don't have to have that exit. You don't have to work, you know, 15 hours a day to make ends meet so you can pay that mortgage and that car payment and then this insurance and that tax and this, you know, you, you can just, uh, you know, make things so much easier on yourself. Like, you know, you can go travel and live this incredible life in, a, in different countries and uh, still not even spend a fraction of what you're spending in, in the US, for example. It's become so expensive with inflation and uh, gas prices through the roof. I feel like we're, we're saving so much by, by hacking this life. And we're also very happy because life is so full of surprises when you just go to different places. <laughs> it doesn't become boring. And it takes a really strong partnership to make that work because 
the, the movement and of course, you know, raising two small children, I assume that comes with its own complexities when you're you know, moving country to country. What's been the importance of your partnership in facilitating that life? You know, with, just with partnership as well as companies, um, if you have the same goal uh, and you're moving towards it together, it's so much easier to manage. So if you are a couple or you have kids and you have this goal and it's your North Star and uh, you don't kind of like waver, you, you, it's, it's quite, uh, I'm not going to say it's quite easy because any, any partnership is, is, diff, is, it's, it has its challenges, you know, there's no perfect relationship. There's not perfect anything. Uh, so I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, it's so easy. You can just do X, Y, Z. Uh, but it, it does have its challenges. You know, sometimes it gets stressful before we get to a place because you have to do all the logistics and figure those out. Uh, but once you get there, you kind of can relax for a few months, uh, and then earn the fruits of your label, uh, labor by being able to enjoy the surroundings and learn about the culture and enjoy the food. So, yes, it is a bit of work to get there. Uh, but uh, w- once you are settled, then it, it becomes uh, much easier. Uh, but, the, yeah, I mean, for us, what we need to figure out is um, child care. So our kids are still young and small, like they don't have to go to a school. Uh, and uh, in a new country or a new place, we immediately figure out childcare. As soon as that's figured out, we have at least eight hours a day that we can do our work and do other things. Um, so it becomes quite easy to manage, to be honest. But um, yeah, of course, keeping that connection, keeping the communication, uh, that's very important. So what's next for you in terms of where do you plan to visit next? What does your life, career, future look like? <laughs> wow, great questions. I um, At the moment, we were supposed to kind of like uh, move into a house that we have bought almost two years ago in the, the Miami area. And just because um, it's become this like tech hub and the government uh, is quite flexible. Uh, so we, we like the area quite a bit. We don't know how we're going to feel if we have like a home base and we want to live there or if we want to still move around. Uh, but that's been being pushed back a lot because of labor shortages, um, all of the nightmare uh, situations that a lot of people are, are dealing with. Uh, however, there's a silver lining there that we're supposed to continue with this life and explore new places. Um, I want to go to Portugal next um, to go to a, a, a town or city called Sintra. Uh, It's about maybe like one or two hours from Lisbon and uh, a company called Boundless Life, which basically arranges this type of life for families, uh, has a community built uh, in there. So basically all you have to do is pay this fee uh, and you get the Airbnbs um, as well as your kids' school taken care of. There is a community of other people that are doing the same exact thing as you. And you enjoy uh, a lot more uh, this type of life because you don't have to worry about all the logistics. They take care of it. So I'm really excited to check that out. So potentially Portugal uh, and then next will be Bali. Uh, We have a team gathering there for safe doing in Bali in October. So that could also be a fun place to explore for a few months with a family. And then career-wise, um, I don't know. I um, I love what I'm doing right now. It's uh, so fulfilling. The culture is the best culture I've ever been part of in any company. I, I just can't even start to describe it. I feel so free and um, fulfilled 
that even though I get a lot of offers from different companies and for a lot more money, I'm not that interested because I'm I'm very happy with a life-centric uh, opportunity that they offer to um, everyone that's part of the company. So I don't know. I uh, I have a lot of dreams still. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I do think that we'll see. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time today. It was great to get to know you a bit better, to hear a bit more about your story and your views on life. I'm going to link all of your details in the podcast show notes for those that want to connect with you offline. Yes. Just to want to thank you again so much for your time and, and hope we can stay in touch. Thank you, Matt. And yes, please uh, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to help anyone that has questions about this type of lifestyle. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. EntoHR is a digital transformation consultancy working at the intersection of strategy, technology, and people operations. We partner with organizations, private equity, and venture capital firms to accelerate value creation and identify the organization's highest leverage initiatives. And this can take place in many forms, from strategic planning and alignment to technology procurement, implementation, and integration, along with organizational design, process re-engineering, and change management. With our proven track record of working with complex, high-growth organizations, we provide a lens that goes beyond the balance sheet, increasing enterprise readiness, resilience, and value. For more information, check us out at bentohr.com.